morning, everybody. My name is Harold, an alcoholic. It's good to be with everybody. Thanks for the invitation to participate, especially in a hometown event. It's always a privilege and honor. My sobriety date is April 7, 1987. My home group is AA on the Rocks. Meets every Wednesday night at the corner of Shaw and Tower Grove, right by Botanical Garden from 7 to 8.30. If you're ever in the neighborhood, we'd love to have you. There's a strong Al-Anon group. Meets right across the hall at the same time. Uh, we work in unison. We love uh, recovery, and uh, we'd love to see you there on Wednesday night sometime here in the neighborhood. And uh, you get us a, uh, long enough uh, warning, we'll put you to work probably. You know, so <laughs> love to have you. Um, um, Robbie, thanks for the, the invitation. Robbie. You know, Robbie's, Robbie used to look like Joe Dirt. Everybody remembers Joe Dirt. You know, he had a, he'd come in here, he had a mullet. And believe it or not, he had a mullet, you know. And his life has changed. He, he came in, problem with cocaine, now it's switched to Rogaine, and he's been coming ever since. He's been coming ever since. He's, he's hanging tough. But, uh, you know, Robbie and I used to be neighbors, and, I, and I'll just tell you a quick great story about Robbie. Robbie and I used to be neighbors, and we had a horse farm that backed up to our house, and uh, Robbie still lives there today. And the, the owner of the house, the owner of this horse farm wanted to put in a golf driving range. And it was a big uproar because they were going to put in these lights that were going to shine around the back of the house. And it was a big, big controversy. And Robbie had a lot of resentment about it at the time. And I came home from work one day, and, and, I, and I'm in the kitchen. I hear a bunch of commotion out in the backyard. I'm like, what's going on? I go out there, and Robbie's ready to go fisticuffs with this uh, guy across the Bob wire fence. It was great. I'm out there watching and, and Robbie's like, why don't you just come over on this side of the fence and I'll just whip your ass, right? <laughs> we'll just solve it the manly way. And I said, Robbie, Robbie, let's tone it down. You know, went down. <laughs> Talked him down and saved him, uh, who knows, could have went to prison. Oh. But, uh, but yeah, it, Robbie, Joe Dirt, you know. And uh, Joe, What was Joe Dirt's famous line? You know, things are going to go right because I'm Joe Dirt. You know, that was, that was, was Joe Dirt's famous line. But uh, it's good to be here. And, and have Susie hang out with us for the weekend. And last year at this time, we were getting married. And, uh, you know, right during this weekend, it was, we had leap year, so it kind of tossed it off a day. But, yeah, we were doing that last year and had a great time. And uh, it, it's, been a, it's been a great ride. It's fun to see Doug. Doug, I've known Doug a long time. We always – I just see Doug, I just start smiling. It, he, Doug just has that effect on me. It's intoxicating. And uh, Sheldon and I was just with Sheldon, and we had a blast in Tennessee. And Carla, I always love seeing Carla. And last time I was with Carla was in Tennessee, you know, good old state of Tennessee. And you're, you're these two are just phenomenal. You're going to have a great time tonight uh, with all of them. Encourage you to be here Sunday to hear Carla, one of my favorite ladies in AA. So definitely uh, pay your dues and uh, enjoy the time. Um, it's Memorial Day weekend, you know, and, and, uh, and it's been a tough year for me. You know, my mom, we lost, Doug lost his mom. I lost my mom in September of last year. My mom was the biggest winner in my life, you know, and uh, this is the first year without her. But uh, but there's a lot of people that gave up their life. And so if you're a veteran here, I, I'd love to give it up for you guys. So if you're a veteran, you want to stand so we can applaud you. If you're in her, Mia, Megan. No question, we live in the greatest country in the in the world, and, and I don't think that Alcoholics Anonymous could have happened anywhere but the United States. You know, so we, we got to remember that, and uh, and remember those who went before us. You know, a lot of a lot of great AA members that I'm known, you know, right here in our own community uh, that are no longer with us that we lost just this past year. So, uh, but I'm glad to be here. I was born in Nevada, Missouri, uh, right on the west side of Missouri. For those who don't know. Uh, spelt the same way as Nevada, but we pronounce it Nevada. You know, that's the pronunciation right on the Missouri-Kansas border to the greatest mom on the planet, who I just mentioned. Absolutely the greatest mom on the planet. My mom was married to an alcoholic uh, here in St. Louis, had three kids, and, and basically lost her mind during that, that relationship. Totally just went off the deep end, left, left those kids, took off, hooked up with some guy in Springfield. Life spiraled down, and she ended up in a state mental institution in Nevada, Missouri for a number of years. My mom was institutionalized for a long time. And uh, when she got out, she met another alcoholic who happened to be my father. Um, I came out of that marriage, and somewhere along about age two, my mom just had her own her own bottom with all that. She didn't go to Al-Anon. She, she just turned her life over to, to her faith, which is a, 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 as a Catholic, and, and never looked back. I mean, she just gave it all she had. And it was just her and I. We didn't have anybody else. We didn't have any grandparents, no, no uncles, no aunts, nobody. It was just her, me and Mom. We didn't have much money. She always worked two or three jobs, uh, but my mom gave me the two most important things she could give a kid. She always told me she loved me, and she always instilled in me that there was a power greater than myself. And I can promise you if it wasn't for those two things, I wouldn't be standing here today. They ultimately saved my life. They didn't save me from the, the crutches of, of alcoholism and the crippling effects that had on my life, 
but it definitely, uh, ultimately it did, but not in the, in the beginning. But she tried to give him everything. We grew up in a beat-up old house. I lived, at one time, we lived right next door to a lady, shared the same bathroom in this old beat-up duplex. And uh, just destitute as bad as you could get in America. And uh, But I didn't I didn't really realize that's what we were at. You know, I, I had a pretty rich life emotionally, mentally, spiritually with her in the, in the household. She'd take me to church every day. I was involved in Mass. I loved to go to Mass every day. I'd come home and play church. I was so excited. I had a, the spiritual calling. I'd play church. I'd set up a TV trays for an altar. I'd dump the fruit out of the fruit bowl, full, full potato chips for the Eucharist. I'd have grape Kool-Aid for the wine. I'd get the Bible out, throw some towels around my shoulders, bring a few guys over, save a few souls. It was a great day. Right? And, uh, and that's how I lived my life. I mean, I, I mean, I loved it. I loved everything about it. I played drums. I was gifted at drums and, and percussion, and I picked that up real quick. And uh, I was just in. I lived in a very isolated world. I didn't have a lot of friends. It, there wasn't much going on. Um, but right around age seven, my mom said, hey, we're moving. I said, we're moving. She goes, yeah, we're going to move to a suburb of St. Louis um, so you can meet your some people. And I said, who am I going to meet? She goes, you're going to meet your brothers, your brother and your two sisters. I didn't even know I had a brother and two sisters. That just shows you how tore apart our family was. And so we moved to a trailer park and out here in Arnold, Missouri, for those who are that survived Arnold, Missouri, if, you're, if you survived Fox C6 and all that, but uh, I lived in a trailer park, Starling Community Trailer Court. And uh, and that was a huge step up for a way of life for me. It really was. It was a tremendous step up and uh, moved into this trailer court. And I, I thought it was great. I had two rooms. I had one, my drums all set up in one room, all my music equipment. I had my own bedroom. And and uh, I didn't have I didn't have much, uh, I guess, compassion for my neighbors because, you know, I was still learning to play the drums. I mean, and, and I was blowing out with KISS albums and Rush 2112 <laughs> trying to learn how to play these very accomplished drummers in the trailer park. You can just imagine what that sounded like racking through the trailer park. Uh, but what happened, and, and, and all of us have this shift. Some of us, it starts immediately in life, and others, it takes time. And this is just when it took time for me. You know, my mom could no longer afford to keep me in a sheltered life in a parochial school. And I was, I was put into the public school system, Fox C6. And, uh, and, and it opened a whole new world to me. You know, it's this dark world that we live in. I didn't even know it existed at that time. And it really didn't. And I got there, and uh, I was just overwhelmed by it all, overwhelmed by all the people. And I, and I had this personality. And I, a lot of you may have the same. I think it's pretty common. We're really hypersensitive as alcoholics. But I had this personality where I wanted everybody in the room to pay attention to me. But I also wanted everybody in the room to leave me to hell alone. And the kicker was I wanted you to do it at the same time. That was the kicker. <laughs> if you just said, Harold, we think you're great, never talk to me the rest of the night, we get along great. right? But it didn't happen that way. So what you thought of me absolutely paralyzed me absolutely paralyzed me and so i was just in constant turmoil between my ears you know all the time with the, whoever i was running around with of trying to be a part of whatever it took to fit in i mean that that, that peer pressure was just huge on me um you know I, I, my mom drank her whole life my mom always had a budweiser sitting around or it usually was cheap beer hams or shapers just crap beer you know she'd always buy what's on sale and uh and she always had a fifth of old crow whiskey underneath the sink I can't sit here and tell you if I ever took a drink off that stuff or not. As a kid, I can't honestly tell you that. I can't remember if I took a sip off alcohol. I don't know. I know I started out, you know, in the drugs for the initial part of my story. Cigarettes came into play, you know, initially from peer pressure. Hey, man, smoke one of these. Smoked a cool, got sick as hell. I said, I'll never do that again. I was buying a pack of cools the next week, you know, smoking cools. And, and then it started out with the dope. And eventually my drug of choice between don't mind if I do was my drug of choice. You know, if you had it, I would do it. You know, and that's how I started out. But my first real drink... It was probably right around the age of 11, I, and not having a father in your life is a, is a huge deal. I just didn't think it was until I got sober and done lots of inventory and realized just how big a deal it wasn't. But, you know, not having a male role model in my life, you know, it caused me, I wouldn't say caused me, but it, 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 it influenced me to hang around people that were a lot older than I was. As, as a guy, I hung around 17, 20-year-olds, 25-year-olds, uh, just because of the, I wanted their experience, strength, and hope in life. I just didn't have them. Mom was always, I did whatever I wanted to do. I raised myself. I just came and go. From the time I was 10, I just did whatever the hell I wanted to do. No no authority whatsoever. And uh, so here I am running around these guys, and this kid named Steve, he's about 17, invited me to his house. He said, man, why don't you come over to the party? And I was popular because I started to grow my hair long, and I was playing in the bands. I was playing in stage band. So I was popular because I was a drummer, and that was really it. And I got invited to this party. And I went to his house, and uh, he's playing bartender. His parents are in Florida. He's standing behind the bar, a bunch of people there, big party, smoke, dope. Girls, loud music. It never been to nothing like it in my life. And I uh, walked in. I was just taken back by it all. And, and he's standing behind the bar, and he says, "Hey, man," I go, he goes, "What are you drinking?" And I never really ever had a drink in my life. I didn't even know how to answer the guy. And I just said, "Whatever you're drinking is what I'll drink." And he says, "Well, why don't you drink this and fix up some potion? Hand me a 
big slow gin and coke and a big green glass. I remember like it was yesterday. And I went over, I remember, I can just remember it vividly, going over sitting on the couch with this slow gin and coke. And, and just the fear was over me what to do with it. Finally, I got the courage to take a pull off it. It tasted like cough syrup. wasn't too big a deal. And it went down okay. I took another pull off it. And eventually, I started to get the, the buzz, you know, that went through her body. I started to get a smile on my face for the first time like I ain't never had before in my life. And eventually, I took some more, and the smile got a little bigger. And eventually, the smile just wrapped all the way around my head. You know, that's what alcohol did for me the first time I drank. And that, that's the effect alcohol had on me immediately. And I was in. I was all in for that feeling whatever it took from that day forward. Now, I got as sick as I've ever been off alcohol. I said my first foxhole prayer I ever said on alcohol. I lied about my alcoholism that night. A foreshadow of how my drinking career would look like all happened the very first time I drank. And I didn't go out and drink necessarily the next day or even the day after that. But everything that went with it, because alcoholism is a lifestyle. You know, it really is. It's truly a lifestyle. And we all have different variations of that. You know, we heard Doug's last night. And, and, and not everybody has Doug's story, but everybody probably has Doug's relationship with alcohol at some level in their life. And that, I had this relationship with alcohol. So everything, but I, I, I had to fit in with whatever I was doing. So I wasn't cool, man. I was not cool looking back then. I mean, I used to have long hair down here. I, you know, it used to make you wear gym shorts when you went to gym. Remember red gym shorts and Converse shoes? I mean, that's what I, I looked like a dork standing here with a, with a T-top on and a pair of red shorts and, and long hair down here. And literally anybody else in gym class, man. Total dork face. But I had to get cool, and I wasn't cool, man. And so I started dressing kind of like Doug. I, had, I got the big bell-bottom pants. I got the suede brown shoes. I got the red shoestring. I got me a blue jean jacket, ripped the sleeves off, had a USA patch on it, peace sign, took a thumbtack out of a kiss poster, shut it through my ear, put me an earring in, made me a headband out of a piece of belt. I had long hair. I had a gap tooth. I had freckles. I had a few zits. I looked like a freaked-out Howdy Doody is what I looked like. <laughs> if you ever seen Mad Magazine, that's what I looked like. It was long hair. Really, truly. It was really... You look at those pictures today. Once in a while, I'll throw one on Facebook for third, Throwback Thursday. People go, "Yep, definitely freaked out." How he did it? Like but I was just doing whatever it took to fit in, man. I just wanted to to be a part of, man. And and, uh, and my life had already changed. My life changed the day I took that drink. You know, it really did, and uh, it just changed forever. It just introduced me to a, a feeling and a sensation and a part of life that I never experienced before. And I just wanted as much as I could get. And I did whatever. I, I compromised whatever to happen. And it just is a slow fade. It didn't happen overnight, but a slow fade. But I started to lie, started to cheat, I started to steal. We didn't have any money. And I hooked up with a couple of the guys and robbed the manager of the trailer court. You know, this big trailer court. And burglarized her house right in the middle of the afternoon. Took the, the money box down to the creek and opened it up. Ten grand in cash. Rested checks. Burnt the checks. Split the cash. Got arrested the very first time we did it. Got caught and uh, got put on indefinite probation. But it didn't stop. I was just a poor thief, you know, and I would go right back and try some more. And I eventually got caught, and, uh, and they said, well, we're going to sentence you to Boys Town. So they sent me to Boys Town in Missouri. Some of you know where that's at, St. James, Missouri. And, 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 and our book talks about on page 63, it says, you know, the alcoholic is driven by a hundred forms of fear, self-pity, and self-delusion that drives you. And this, this story I'm about to tell you is exa exactly evidence of that. Because I'm sitting in the car, and we're getting ready to make this journey down 44 to St. James, Missouri. And this committee between my ears, this hundred forms of fear, self-pity, self-delusion, that darkness that's in our mind, the enemy, the lower power, the devil himself, I don't care, whatever you want to call it, alcoholism, the ism, whatever, this, non, this darkness that's between our mind starts hammering me in the car. And this is what they said. You know, man, this is an all-guys deal. I'm like, yeah, they have my attention. I'm listening. They said, you know, you can't go there with the name Harold because the name Harold sucks. And I'm thinking... You know what? That, that's right, man. It does kind of suck. You know, there's nothing cool about the name Harold. And you can't use your middle name, which was Eugene. You can't use that. So in an hour and a half drive down this road, I changed my name to Jeffrey Allen Long. As a, that's what my name was until I came to Alcoholics Anonymous. That's the power of 100 forms of fear and self-pity. That's how much what you thought of me influenced my life. You know, I would just do it. I was willing just to change my whole identity, my name and everything, just to be a part of your life. That's how much fear dominated my life. And... Uh, and I would have been the first one to say, I ain't scared of nothing. I've been the first guy to get in your face and tell you I wasn't scared of you know, anything. But I got there, and, and this is just the, the course of my life. I had so many good people. I can't even list them all. So many good people, by the grace of God, that got put in my way, put in my path to try to help me, try to put me on the right track, try to give me good early direction, you know, prayed for me, loved on me, did everything they could to get me on the right track. But that time, that, that right to myself, I'd already planted that flag in the ground. I'm going to do what I want, what I want, I want, and if you don't like it, screw you. That was my M.O., and I can't tell you the day or the hour, but that came long before I ever picked up a drink. You know, that, that right to myself 
was it was seated in my heart. So you weren't going to get past that. I just didn't want to hear what you wanted to say. I already knew what I wanted to do before I ever got there, and that was go do more of what we like to do. And I couldn't wait to get out of here to do it. And I'd say whatever, act however, do whatever, get your coins, get your certificates, get your pat, get your praise, whatever. So just get out the door and go do what I want to do next. I had no desire to change. I just wanted to go live the life. I was under the delusion that I could go out and be successful at this thing called partying, just like everybody else I saw. And I was, and I wanted to have it. And I got out and I got in more trouble. And eventually, Department of Corrections came into my life, and uh, I didn't have to worry about a name no more. They gave me a number and sent me to Boonville Correctional Center. You know. <laughs> And that started a whole new journey in my life. But, and the Department of Corrections had their teeth in me well into sobriety. Uh, but none of that changed who I was. I was introduced to my first AA meeting in 1979 in the Derrick County Detention Center. That's where I was introduced to AA. And a couple guys, gracious guys, couldn't tell you nothing about the meeting either. I remember I remember them coming in. There were a couple old guys. And we were in a small little camp and it, with a concrete lime green table. They brought the meeting in. And I just remember it was an AA meeting. Couldn't tell you what happened. Uh, not long after that, I was I got arrested again, and they gave me an ultimatum. You can go back to Boonville Correctional Center, or you can go into treatment for 30 days. This is in 1980. Well, I quit school when I was 13. I wasn't great at math, but I knew 30 days was a hell of a lot shorter than two and a half years. So I'll go do the 30 days. I went into treatment, and that was my first time in treatment. I was by far the youngest cat, little country town, northern Missouri, Kirksville, Missouri. That's where I was at. And I did my I did my time, and, and eventually they sent us to outside meetings. Never been to an outside AA meeting, and they finally dumped us on a bus and little van and shoved us down to this little town called La Plata, and drove us into this little meeting about ten people, all farm people, real old. I was I mean decades youngest guy there by decades, and this lady who looked like Mrs. Claus. Her name's Millie Mays. She's passed away now, but but her name was Millie, and she looked like Mrs. Claus. She had big white hair, big rosy cheeks, big smile on her face, just you know just full of love. Met me at the door, welcomed me to AA. Sit me down next to her, got me a pop, because that's what we call it, you know, got me a pop, and we're sitting there, and everybody has to talk. There's only 10 people in the room. And eventually it gets my turn. I said, well, my name's Jeff, and I'm here because the Department of Corrections said I had to come, and I've only got about 10 days left, and you'll never see my ass again. That was pretty much my announcement to the meeting, because I'm not like you people. And then this lady turned on me, man. She grew horns, fangs, and a tail. <laughs> right there, man, I'll never forget it. And she looked at me and she said, Well, just keep drinking, you dumb little bastard. It's all going to happen to you. <laughs> right? And she became, she became my first resentment in Alcoholics Now. Because all I thought about was whipping her ass the rest of the night. But, it, but it's just funny how the grace of God works because years later, I got to speak at her anniversary. I think it was her 40th day anniversary in her town in Shelby, Missouri. It was uh, quite a long journey from where that was at to, to that point in time. But uh, she died a graceful... You know, three legacy, strong, strong lady in Alcoholics Anonymous. So forever, ever grateful for, for that experience. But I didn't stay sober. I went to one of the best parties I ever went to that night. As soon as I got out of the treatment center, Johnny and Tommy Thomas picked me up, got in the back of the pickup truck to hand me some blotter acid with a Snoopy on it. Ate two of them. <laughs> went down to the river, drank jungle juice, took the coin I just got for skipping out of treatment, and skipped it across the river. It was a great party. I mean, I don't, the school bus full of people there right on the river, man, it was great. Woke up the next morning. I knocked, I got knocked in the fire that night. Somehow or another, somebody got in a fight and fell into me, knocked me right into the fire. Woke up the next morning, had second, third degree burns all over my arm, my chest. I still got those scars there today. Uh, big old tomato head, you know, from the night before. But no desire to quit drinking, man. Just going to keep on living the dream, man. It's living the dream. Uh, you know, I, what happened was I got, not long after that, I was playing a gig for the United Way on the town square in Kirksville, Missouri on a Sunday morning, 10 o'clock. The very last song, believe it or not, on a Sunday morning in this little country town was Ozzy Osbourne tra Crazy Train, the very last song. And I go into a seizure. I have a seizure. I just slip out. I have a seizure. I wake up, and I got a drumstick in my mouth, paramedics around. They want to take me to the hospital. I said, I ain't going to the hospital, man. And I went across the street to the pharmacy, laid in the bathroom, sick as I've ever been, shaken, terrified because I didn't know what happened to me. Um, but it didn't stop me. And a few weeks later, they talked me into going in, into the hospital just because I could be, I could have a tumor, or I could be epileptic. I knew in my heart of hearts what the problem was. But I went ahead and went. And in this little town, everything's in there. So it's just a floor above the treatment center I just got out of two weeks before. And I'm in this treatment center and uh, or in this hospital. And my mom's there. I'll never forget it. She was sitting right here. And this guy named Laverne comes in from Preferred, still involved with Preferred today, I believe. All these years later, he came in and sat next to me. He says, uh, and he just baby gave me the A pitch, man. He said, Harold, are you ready to try this way of life? And uh, as nice as I could tell that guy to go jump in the lake, that's what I told him. I said, dude, I'm just, I'm just not looking for what you got to offer me. And I appreciate everything you're doing for me, and I'm just not interested. And he just smiled and closed the book and said, well, you know where to find us if you need us. And we'll, we'll save a spot for you. I said, I appreciate it. And he left. And my mom's sitting there in tears. 
she says, you know, she did, she just laid it out, you know, no Alan on, no nothing. She just, she was just done. My mom was done. She goes, well, look, this is your choice when you walk out of this treatment center. You can either go back and continue to do your life however you want to do it, or you can go back and do it this other direction, get your life together, go back to school, or you can get on down the road, brother. But it's your choice. And being an NFL Marlboro letter on letter guy I was, I just said, screw you, mom. You know, I don't need you either. That's what that's what came out. The other half of me is dying inside thinking my own mom doesn't even love me anymore. But that's the choice I made because I wanted to go live this life. So I chose to leave. I was 15, just going on 16 years old. I wasn't even 16 years old left. And I hooked up with this guy who was drifting through town. He'd been there about six months. His name was Scotty. He was headed back to Austin, Texas. He's about 45. Had an old UPS van that he converted into, a, I guess, a living van, Scooby-Mobile, whatever you want to call it. You know, he had it. And I said, uh, you think I could hook up with you and go back to Texas? And he said, uh, if your parole officer will let you go and give you a piece of paper so, so I don't get in trouble, you could go. And I went and saw my parole officer, Lynn Mandoli, and I said, can I go to – I didn't even get it out. She signed off on it. I said, I'll see you later, dude. Don't worry. <laughs> she, she was ready to get rid of me. And I took off, and I went to Texas with Scotty. And, uh, and I lived all over the South. And I lived in Texas and Georgia and Tennessee. I lived everywhere, man, and, and just drinking and just surviving and just hell-raising and, and, and just what we did. You know, it was just a – a hillbilly, man. I was just a you know a drunken hillbilly, crazy. Loved the party, loved everything about it, and never thought about not drinking. Never entered into any picture. Our book, you know, our book lays out several different types of alcoholics. To, you know, doc, the doctor's opinion through the solution, more about alcoholism to the wives. Lay out all these variations of and, and trying to give us border plate models of what different types of alcoholics look like. And, and uh, there's people in here in, in this room, I'm sure that was, every day was a swear off day. And there's people in here that would binge drink and go days and days and days without drinking and drink for long periods of time. And there's cats like me, I can count on one hand how many times not drinking ever entered this picture. I can count on one hand. And, uh, and I believe on top of page 30, when that very first word says most, most alcoholics will pursue this thing to the gates of insanity or death. And if you've been around long enough, you know that's the truth. You know, we're, we're in this room this morning. We are the exception, not the rule. The rule, we're going to burn our lives to the ground. It's a heartbreaking fact when you sit and think about it, but it's the absolute truth. So if we're sitting here this morning, no matter if we're day sober or we're 29 years sober or 30 years sober, if we're here and we have a desire not to drink, it's a tremendous, tremendous gift. And we need to hang on to it because it can be gone tomorrow. And if you've been around and you've watched somebody with long-term sobriety, and I'm saying five years or more, lose that sobriety date and never be able to get it back, it's one of the most heart-wrenching things that we ever witnessed. And we watched one of our best friends just a couple of years ago go right down the tubes, you know, because of this. After 14 years of recovery, could never get it back. Battled it for five years until he finally just took his life through a heroin overdose. It's a heartbreaker, you know. And, not, and, and I, I guarantee you so many people in this room tried to reach that human being one more time, and we just couldn't break the darkness. It's cunning, baffling, powerful, man. It's an evil, evil illness. And, and if we're free from it today, man, let's hang on to it. And let's give God the glory for it. And let's not compromise it in our walk. But because you know, because it's because it's of this alcoholic mind that it destroys so many people. We we throw the word denial around, you know. And, the, and denial is not even a word we find in the Big Book. It's mentioned twice: once in Bill's story, and once in the Spiritual Appendix. But both times it relates to denial of a power greater than myself. It does, our book never talks about alcoholism on the basis of denial. It talks about it on the basis of delusion and illusion. I mean, I can't see myself for what I really am, and I can't differentiate the true from the false. It's way deeper than denial. And I think that's the adequate you know, explanation of alcoholism, that I just can't see myself the way everybody else sees me. You know, and, and, and it's because, you know, alcoholics, we've had this tendency our whole life. We have the tendency to fabricate or elaborate on what's going on in our life, drunk or sober. Just the way it is isn't good enough. We just want to put a little bit more on it, sugar it up a little bit, or make it a little bit darker than it needs to be. Just the way it is is never good enough. And we're masters at it, and we've been doing it our whole life. We're so conditioned at it, we don't even know we do it. An example of that is the guy's down on the riverbank fishing, this little kid walks up to him and says, Hey, mister, did you catch any fish today? He goes, Well, if I catch this one and one more, that'll give me two for the day. The kid walks away and goes, Man, that's awesome. You know, the guy ain't caught nothing. But it sounded great. You know, the kid scratched his head thinking this guy's great. And that's how we are about our life. And I mean, we can do it right into sobriety. That's why we need sponsorship and to be accountable because, man, we can, we can dress it up real fast. And, uh, and we're, when we do it without even trying, it just becomes natural for people like us. And, uh, and that's the way it is with alcoholism. My, my first even concession that I was alcoholic happened when I was 19. And if you're new to Alcoholics Anonymous, it's this alcoholic mind that will kill you. And what I'm about to describe to you is, is the whole transactions, the whole exchange between this alcoholic mind that I possess and, and what almost killed me. I was 19 years old, living in Ackworth, Georgia, in Red Barn Treadle Court. I lived there with my buddy Mike and Danny. 
Not one person from the state of Georgia lived on our street. Not one person. Everybody was from Kentucky or Tennessee. It was all the rejects from all the other states lived on my street. It was kind of like the island of misfit toys, if you remember Red Red and Reindeer. That was it. That's where Charlie in a box. He lived right next door. But I lived next door to three guys named Porkchop, Hollywood, and Screwdriver. (laughs) To get real indication how my life was going. But I woke up one morning on a, on a Saturday morning, and uh, I loved the honky tonks. I loved to go to the bars, and uh, and I had this gift. I possessed this gift. Some of you probably possess this gift, but I had this gift, especially in the bars. And I loved the bars, man. I was not a, I was not a lone drinker. I loved to party. I loved to be with people. But I had to, I had this gift, especially if I was drinking hard liquor or if I mixed it with something other than alcohol, that somebody wanted to punch me at least once before the night was out. You know that person? That was me. I was that guy. I was, and I was very gifted at receiving. Some pretty good knockout blows, you know. So it wasn't uncommon, but uncommon for me to wake up with the dog's not nasty whipped out of me. It was not uncommon. So I woke up this morning, and I'm, it's about 10 o'clock in the morning, way late in the morning, and I, I'm fully dressed. I got blue jeans on, I got my boots on, I got a flannel shirt, and I got a ski jacket on. And I wake up, and I'll sit up on the trailer floor and I rub my eyes, and I look, and I got blood all over my, all over me. I got blood over my hands, my, my jacket. And I'm thinking, oh, man, you know, and I'm, I'm a blackout drinker. I've been a blackout drinker since the beginning. So, I mean, not knowing what happened was a common thing with me. I just I didn't know what happened. So I'm sitting there trying to put my thinking, and I can't think of what happened. To this day, I can't tell you what happened. But what I did is I got went to the bathroom, started looking in the mirror to see who kicked the snot out of me. And I wasn't beat up. And I'm thinking, man, what the hell happened to me? And I started getting undressed. And when I did, I realized somebody sliced me all the way down my arm and stabbed me twice in my ribcage. Sliced me wide, wide open like a fish. And, uh, and I had no idea what had happened to me. And, uh, and, of course, it freaked me out. And I went out on the front porch, and, uh, and I sat down. I'm trying to smoke a cigarette. I'm shaking. And it was the first time, man, and all, the, all the, the introductions to this fellowship to a solution better than I had going on were that I had any concession for the first time. I sat there with tears in my eyes, and I'm sitting there thinking to myself, man, you know, there's got to be a better way than this, man. There's got to be a better. I got to do something different. But this is the darkness of alcoholism, and and, and Bill Wilson personified, you know, alcoholism and called him King Alcohol. Also gave him an old English character's name, John Barleycorn, and I love that because that's how it is. I mean, our, our relationship with alcohol is a relationship. It is, and it's a romance, man. And we'll go to the end. We'll die. We're willing to die to have this relationship. And so this is John Barleycorn sitting next to me, and this is how the conversation went. And I call John Barleycorn the Great Compromiser because he'll meet you halfway all the time in your illness. And I'm sitting there, and I'm just full of shame, full of remorse, just destitute, thinking to myself, i got to do something different what I'm doing. And John, Barley, and, I'm, and John Barleycorn speaks up, and he says, you know what, kid? You're right. You do need to do something different, and you need to do it quick. But before we do anything drastic, go grab that old army jacket, and let's walk up here to the matching market and get a quart of beer and a pack of smokes. Best advice I heard all morning. I got the army. I didn't even wash the blood off my hands. I walk up to the, the, the magic market. I got the quart of beer. <laughs> made that noise we all love. A little I dream of genie popped out, that, that which is the ease, the ease, the, the sense of ease and comfort coming out of that bottle. I, mean, I was feeling better before I ever put it to my lips, and if you're alcoholic, you know that feeling. And as soon as I put that to my lips, that's the last time I thought about not drinking for a long time. And that's alcoholism. I hitchhiked to Marietta, Georgia. I got sewed up, and the game was on. That's why most people die from alcoholism. And if I go down that road ever again, that's I'll probably never come back from it because of that alcoholic mind. And today, and for the last 29 years, I've been free from that, man. What a tremendous gift to that. But, but I came back to St. Louis, and I was a bar drinker. I, never, I lost my license. I had three DWIs before I was 17 years old, so I never had a license. I lost the privilege to drive before I ever had a driver's license. So I never owned a driver's license until I was about 26 years old in, in the fellowship. But I came back to St. Louis, and I got arrested for four DWI, driving on a boat, had up all the charges. A few weeks after that, I'm playing over in Illinois at a rock and roll bar, Coming back about three in the morning with a bunch of guy, band members, and I'm in the back seat, um, and we get in, we get pulled over on the side of the road. Somebody in a pickup truck, we didn't know at the time, but hit us with a spotlight and pulls us over. We just thought it was the cops. So we're all prepared. I'm I'm already conceited. I'm just ready to go to jail because it's a typical day at the at the office for me. But eventually the light goes out and the pickup takes off, and it's just a couple knuckleheads in a pickup truck. They were messing with us with a spotlight, and we take off after him with a high-speed chase and we ended up in a high-speed chase coming back towards st louis and it, they tried to run us off the road and we swerved at them but eventually going about 89 miles per hour they were in a fast lane they just whipped it a little bit too hard and that pickup went over over the back and flipped numerous times and by the time it landed on its top it, it destroyed the truck and killed everybody inside the vehicle and uh and it was way after daylight when i got home but when i got home i was i was a guy that was broken to a point that i don't know if i've ever really fully recovered from that you know, when, when you're in, engaged in that kind of thing, when, 
when loss of life or, or permanent disability happens to somebody, it, it just rips a piece out of you. You just don't get back. And uh, But, you know, there's nothing between me and the next drink. Doug talked about this last night. But if there's nothing between you and the next drink, guess what? You drink every time. And it doesn't matter how much money you got, where you live, how much education you got, how much talent you got, how much gifts you got, who your parents are. If there's nothing between you and the drink, you'll drink every time, man. And I got home, and the only thing I could think of was just drink. And I went and got a can of Shaper's beer, 10 o'clock in the morning, pulling the top on that thing, and just trying to shove that emotion out of my life. I just couldn't stand the shame and the pain that was going on in my life. And, 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 a few, and a, not even a week later, I'm arrested again for a 50 WI conviction, felony DWIs, and in so much trouble. I'm 21 years old, going on 22. Take me to Clayton County. I'm laying in the jail, selling my underwear, crawling around like a wild beast. Um, just broken, 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 broken guy. And I uh, absolutely no idea what I was going to do other than I had such a sincere desire to live a different life, man. I just didn't want to live that life anymore. And, and, I, and I, I crawled around her like an animal, and I said the most honest prayer. And this is where I think my mom's influence came full circle in my life because, you know, I, I felt so disqualified in the, in the eyes of God from, from so early in life, I, probably before I ever even picked up a drink, to be honest with you, just because of the evil that went through my mind, the thoughts that went through my mind. But I was just, you know, but with all my heart, I just said, you know, God, I'll do whatever it takes never to drink again. It was really three words or four words. God, please help me. And, and, and I've never had a drink of alcohol since that day. And like Doug, I would say my, my spiritual experience has very much been the educational variety. It's been that way from still today, you know, very much learning. But, it, but, but there's no doubt about it that God's influence in my life was sudden and profound that moment because I asked him to come into my life and I never had a drink since that day. So that's the power of God working in my life. But grace, the, the understanding of that and accepting of that grace, it took years for me to really put that together. But I, got, I knew I needed to go back to treatment. I didn't know anything about recovery in St. Louis. They ended up back 200 miles away back in Kirksville, Missouri, because that's the only place I knew where AA existed. And I went back to this treatment center, not to go to AA. AA wasn't even on my mind. I just knew I was in serious, serious trouble. I had this court trial coming up in June, and I knew I, I had to have something on my resume that was positive. And I knew I needed to be in treatment. And I went up there, and I, and I had some more of those seizures, and it took me a little bit to get out of detox. But eventually the day came, and a knock came on my door. And this guy walks into the meeting, or my room. He's about five foot five, five foot six, about 55, had a goatee, had a Kansas City Chiefs hat on. I hated the Chiefs at that time in my life, so right away I didn't like this guy. You know, he had prison-issued glasses. He's only been sober about two and a half months. And he had a little gruff voice. Looked like George Burns, man, from old God. He looked just like George Burns. It was great. And he comes in, he goes, uh, hey, man. I go, yeah, he goes, you're on the list. He's all excited. I said, list for what? He says, you list, you get to go to outside meetings. I said, man, I'm not interested in going to outside meetings. I appreciate you, you know, but I'm not interested. And so he, he, he tried his hardest to give me the pitch, and then, then he leaves. I just tell him to basically jump in the lake. He leaves, and then a few minutes later, he did something beautiful. He comes back, and he sticks his head in the window, in my door, just his head, his ugly old head, and looks at me and says, will you do me one favor? I said, what's that? He goes, I want you to try really hard to smile and get it over with. And then he walked out. And I'm sitting there going, what the hell is a smile and get it over with me? You know, what, what is that about? But the next thing I know, I'm smiling. You know, I got this smile on my face, and this sense of willingness just came over me. Out of nowhere, just like it almost lifted me up off the bed and put me on my feet. And the next thing I know, I'm out the door down the hall. I'm searching this guy out, and I say, hey, man. He goes, yeah. And I go, I don't know why I'm asking this, but I think I'll go to that meeting with you. He's like, good, man. I go, why? He goes, because I can't get anybody else to go with me. You're like, a... and I knew right away. I swallowed the hook. Right? I mean, what did you just do? And uh, and we went down the elevators, only two floors. We go down the elevator, and we walk out across the parking lot, and uh, and you see the alcoholic car. You know, you've been around great. It's great, and we see the alcoholic car. We could pass the basket in here and pay for the car. I mean, it was just a piece of junk. <laughs> and we and you could see it, and you're hoping that's not the car. You know, as you're walking across the parking lot, you're like, I hope this isn't the car we're going to. But we're walking and we're walking, and uh, close for sure we get there. It was a 1970 pea green Plymouth Duster. <laughs> and uh, we get in the car, man. There's trash everywhere. There's stuff all over the dash. The stereo's hot wired in. There's no floorboards. They're rusted out. You know, it's got it's got floor mats, but you can see big gaps of daylight in it. No muffler on the car. Big old box speakers in the back seat and uh, we cranks this car wah, 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 wah. and off we go little town of Kirksville you know down Baltimore Street wah, and carbon dioxide just pouring through you, burning your eyes out and you're about ready to die from asphyxiation and he's got a big smile on his face because he's got the new guy in the car and he's all pumped man. he's got to show up to the meeting with the new guy in the car and and, uh, and he's looking at me, man, he's trying to give me the A pitch, how great his life is, how great A is and I'm looking at him, I think I invented the word right then, it's like dude I hate to admit it to you. I remember telling him this, dude, 
it looks like your life sucks. <laughs> Let me just be honest with you. you know, everything about your your Chiefs hat, everything all down it. But but he was quick, man. He was quick. He goes, well, tell me about your car. <laughs> well, I never ever had a car. You know? I said, well, you got a point. He goes, and aren't you going to trial in a few weeks? I go, yeah, yeah. He goes, yeah. So we got to the meeting. Now this is this is God doing for me what I couldn't do for myself because I, I I mean I literally went by Jeff all those years and we get to the meeting he keeps calling me Harold and I don't I don't I just submit to it man and we get to the meeting he goes now when we go into this meeting tonight this is a closed meeting you know what that means I go no I don't know what that means so he's telling me the deal he goes well I know you've done other things other than alcohol I go yeah and he goes well when you go into the meeting tonight if they call him let's hope they don't but if they would call on him you just say you're Harold and you're an alcoholic it. Are you good with that? I said, yeah. He goes, because we know what that means when you say alcoholic. It means we know you probably did some drugs. We know you probably slept with a few farm animals. You know, <laughs> we got it all down. It's got a big definition, all inclusive. We bring it all under here. I said, okay. So I, you know, and we made a transition. I've been Harold the alcoholic from that day till now. Isn't that crazy? Just you just walk and just made that transition and didn't even think twice about it. I was just so done with the old life and ready to go live something new and. Uh, I came in and the guy chairing the, me- the guy speaking at the meeting was a guy from the treatment center. He'd been sober about six months, and uh, it's, it's like May or something like that. And he's got a stocking cap on. So right away, I'm questioning this guy. You know, he's got a stocking cap on. He's got a glass a set of glasses with one lens missing, and he's our speaker for that. <laughs> so I'm sitting by where Doug is, right up front, and he's he's lowing out the pitch, man. I'm going, wow, man, this is uh, this is quite classy place you got going on there. And I'm thinking, this this I wanted to cut my wrist, to be honest with you. I wanted to just drive off a cliff right then and there, I thought. And I'm thinking to myself, how do you even do this? And I said to the guy, how long do you got to go to these meetings? You know, I was really concerned about it. The guy goes, until you want to. Oh, it's going to be a hell of a long time before I want to come to this deal, I can tell you. And I didn't want to come to A, man. I didn't. I got out of that place, and I come back to St. Louis. And this is why it's so important, and I can't stress this point enough, that when we exchange for the newcomer that we get their phone number not just hand them yours because if, if you would have just hand me a newcomer's packet with my with your names on it, I, I would have never called you people I promise you I would have never called you but he got my number you know and where I was staying at and he called me he says you go to a meeting no nope. you know, your life depends on you going to me I said yeah whatever you know I just whatever to blow him off the phone but for whatever reason I was honest with the guy I haven't went to a meeting because you got to go to a meeting I said, yeah, I appreciate it, and I didn't go, and I didn't go, and he kept calling, and he's very persistent. He never let off, and uh, finally I got the courage to go, and I, got, I took a bus, went down to the St- Jefferson Street, down to the hospital there to go to a meeting, Saturday, 2 o'clock meeting, and fear just paralyzed me. I couldn't go in the meeting. Absolutely just paralyzed me. And uh, and I watched people go in the meeting. I knew I was at the right place, and I couldn't go in, man. I just got back on the bus and went back home because it was just like I was... It was, it was just like a grieving process with this darkness. It's like I knew if I walk in that door that I'm turning my back on this, this way of life, and, and this is all I know, and it was just such a hardship for me to be able to do that, and I didn't go. And eventually he just kept prodding me and being persistent. Eventually I went to my first meeting, and I started my journey. That was at a place down on Hampton called the Hampton Facility. I went to my first meeting there on 5.30 on a Wednesday, and I started my journey in AA. And, uh, and I would love to tell you that I was just a great A. I came in and got a sponsor and worked the steps, and my life was just great and turned, you know, and all the things happened. But that wasn't the case for me. I came to A the same way I did everything else in life. I did it the way I want, how I want. If you don't like it, screw you. That was pretty much my mentality when I came here. And I was on step none for probably close to three years, you know, and that's where I was at. I just I came here. I loved the fellowship. I loved everything about the fellowship. I loved the potlucks. I loved conventions. I loved to go to the dances. I played on the sober softball teams. I had the sober bands. I did all the stuff. I mean, I did all those things. If you looked at me, you'd see me in a lot of places. You'd go, man, that, that kid's busy doing a deal. But I, my life wasn't really changing, you know, and, uh, and, and I didn't understand what the real nature of our problem was. I was really sold out that alcohol was my problem. And once I put down the drink, my life was just going to explode into this wonderful life. All these opportunities were going to come my way, and I was going to live this great life like I see you guys living. And that didn't happen for me. It, I got really blessed in that court trial. And the court trial I had to go to, and I got really blessed because of tornadic weather. It was this time of year right now, and the tornadoes came. That and It was tornadic weather that night. The, what the, when I went to court, I had the same judge for both cases in Maplewood, Missouri. It was a dark in the afternoon. It was, a, I think, the eighth guy on the docket. I sat down in the foyer where the Coke machine was because I, I was really planning on leaving, you know, because I knew I was going to go to the penitentiary. And, uh, and the guy came down because the power was going in and out, and the winds were blowing sideways, and he came down, and he says, Hey, man, I just got to tell you. You know, the good Lord's looking out for you. And he had a big smile on his face. And I said, why is that? He says, well, man, there's so much chaos up there right now. I just went over to the prosecutor and said, hey, can we just do this, that, and the other? He goes, sure, that's fine. 
just closed out. So they dropped those DNIs to CNIs. So, so we're not going to have felony conviction here, and uh, we're not going to, um, you're not going to get a parole violation, and but you're going to pay me a hell of a lot of money, <laughs> and you're not going to be able to drive it. You haven't been driving this whole time, so who cares about that, you know? And uh, so I walked out of another opportunity at, at life uh, as a free guy, and uh, and that was the first blessing. But man, I took off in this thing, and and, uh, and I burnt my life pretty much right into the ground in sobriety. You know, the first three years, I mean, I, I burned it right into the ground, man. And, uh, and I finally, after three years, almost three years of sobriety, asked this guy to sponsor me when you guys told me from day one I needed a sponsor. And I uh, just reject. I just didn't, I didn't want any authority in my life. You know, I looked at the steps as rules and laws and regulations, and I just don't do rules and laws and regulations. And uh, I don't answer nobody but me. You know, that was my motto. And uh, but finally I was broken. I went to this guy's house, man. I said, man. And he knew me the whole time. And this guy's really got a reputation of being kind of a hard ass, kind of gruff. But he wasn't with me that day. I mean, he's a very gentle guy that day. And he, and he listened to me. He says, well, you've been around two and a half years. Tell me about your life. I said, I'll tell you about my deal. And I wrote out a big blameless and excuseless why my life was in a position it was. I said, I'm 25 years old. I live in the basement of this house. I don't have an education. I don't have a GED. I don't have it. I got a dead-end job. I got a piece of crap Ford Maverick that I can't legally drive. It's held together by a bumper stickers. It's sitting around out there. You know, I'm driving around illegally. Um, my life sucked. You could just take the word suck, bold it, put it in italicis, highlight it, and, and shine it. And that was my life at that time at 25 years old. I, you know, and uh, and uh, he listened to everything I said, man. And he said, well, Harold, he goes, there is no doubt about it. You've been dealt a tough hand. No question. And now I hope you're going to hear what i got to say. He said, Harold, everything you have in your life, right this second, you have because of who you become. The day you're man enough to own that is the day you're on your way to some real change. But until you can own that, so you can just take ownership of where you're at in your life. You're going to continue to pass the buck like you've done your whole life, and you're going to end up like your dad. My dad stuck a shotgun in his mouth and pulled a trigger. That's how my dad quit drinking. Or you're going to go out and try the old game because you're not happy about your sobriety. And I know right in your heart of hearts you don't think you're going to drink. Yeah, tell me you're going to burn your life into the ground. You're going to you're going to do it. And I knew he was. And he said, so it's really boils down to this: you're either going to grow or you're going to go. The million dollar question is, what's your choice to be? And I knew he was going to say, let's work the steps, man. And I, but I just, just, when you live from a worldly position, the steps make no sense. When you live from the mathematics that I live to, that, those don't add up. You know, and I was like, man, I had such a worldly solution. Man, you don't understand. I need a better job. I need a better looking girlfriend. I mean, if you had a few hundred dollars, it's easier to be spiritual when you got a few hundred dollars in your pocket. You know, it just makes sense to me. And I had all these worldly things. And I just didn't see how the steps were going to transform my life. But he got me to take actions that I just wasn't sold out on, but he got me to take them because I was desperate. And he led the way, which was critical. He didn't just tell me about him. He showed me the way. And little by little, it didn't happen one big cataclysmic explosion, but little by little, my life started to change. And, uh, and, and, and it tasted so good, it never stopped from that day till now. You know, and, 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 and everything happened. My sponsor's Tom and, uh, from North Carolina. And Tom taught me many, many years ago. He said, Harold, and he's got a great quote. He says, when preparation meets opportunity and God does the introduction, you know, great things can happen. But the problem was I was never prepared for the opportunities. It wasn't that they didn't happen. I just wasn't prepared to receive them. They went, most of them just flew by me. I didn't even know they existed. But now I started working the steps. And I have a thing, I call it spiritual mathematics, but two plus two doesn't equal four in the realm of the spirit. In God's world, the mathematics don't add up, and the, and the impossible all of a sudden becomes possible. And I've seen it happen in my life, and I've seen it happen in countless others' lives over and over and over again. And I know it's going to happen again. So I walk into meetings, I walk into jail meetings, I walk into my home group, walk into a sponsorship relationship every time with holy anticipation because I know God's going to show up. If we just do what we're asked to do here, it's going to be amazing. It's absolutely going to be amazing. It never ceases to amaze me. But I started that journey. I became teachable. The steps, the step, what the steps primarily did for me is get me to take ownership for the first time in my life, to get away the wreckage of my past for the first time, share, be honest with another human being. Man, all I did was lie my whole life. And my, my sponsor told me, Roy told me right from the beginning, Harold, there's three things I know about an alcoholic. One, they lie. Two, they lie. And three, they lie about lying. You know, he told me that right off the bat. And Because uh, I just, to get in touch with the truth was a foreign concept for me. My, my pat answer, my go-to answer was, I don't know. Harold, what role did you play in that? I don't know. And he used to have a wooden plaque on his wall that said that, I don't know. And he'd point to that sign and laugh, you know, is that my answer? And, you know, and eventually his wife had one that said, do you want to try the truth? And they put that over on this side of the kitchen. <laughs> so that was always the debate, you know, which way do you want to go with this, you know, when we're in confrontation. But, I, but change was hard for me, man. I, 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 I came here, I had an old chain-driven billfold that I wore my whole life. Never had any money in it. But it looked good, you know, and it looked cool and made it look tough. And I had this billfold. I could not let go of that billfold to save my life my first year of sobriety. I would dress up. I mean, nice clothes. I have a chain-driven billfold. 
Just didn't look. It was like wearing cowboy boots with, you know, an Easter bunny outfit. I mean, it just looked crazy. And uh, and these three guys at Hampton facility, their name was Big Don, Furniture Frank, and City Frank. And they hated that billfold. My first year of sobriety, I never forget. I walked in there, and I, on Christmas, it was right around Christmas Eve, and they, they, I walk in, they always sitting there drinking coffee in the foyer in their little chairs. They come in and go, sit down, young man. I sit down. They said, we got something for you. I said, what's that? And they threw me a little brown paper sack. I said, what's that? They said, open it up. I open it up, and it's a brand-new three-fold billfold. They said, Merry Christmas. They said, all right. They said, now we want that other billfold. And they reached behind the, they reached behind the chair and pulled out a pair of bolt cutters. <laughs> and I said, oh, man. And I snapped that thing off, and I gave it to them. It was like just like taking a limb off, man, to hand them that. But it was just another transition. Change was hard, man. I, I, I just didn't under change, and, and uh, I just didn't do change. And it's the crazy thing about the alcohol. I can still today will defend the very thing that's killing us. You know, when it's plain obvious to everybody, it's like we got a shank in our back and we got excruciating pain on our face, and everybody's like, dude, why don't you just turn around and let me take the shank on back? It's like, oh man, you know, it's not as bad as it looks. I don't want to look pretty rough. <laughs> but it's not that bad. It's not what you think. Yeah, it pretty much is. And I can see the tip of the knife sticking out of your collar. But I mean, we're really capable of doing it, man. It's just amazing how we do that. But I started the journey, and little by little, my life started to come back together. I can tell you guys what really transformed my life was step eight and nine. Step eight and nine is what, what really changed my heart, changed my life forever. Um, and I can tell you as a, from a sponsor, a guy who sponsored many, many, many guys over the years, that I've heard a lot more fourth and fifth steps than I ever have eighth and ninth steps. It's so easy to quit when we get to this stage of our sobriety. It's so easy to quit because we just settle for par. I mean, coming here, par is so much better than we had it that we just quit. We come in, we share our laundry with somebody, and we just quit. We look, at, we look at the steps and we see dollar signs and we see conflict. We don't want the personal conflict. Our butt cheeks get real tight. It's like whatever you got to do, avoid that step. I think I'll go back and do another fourth step. It's one of our, our pad answers. Anything to avoid doing the deal. And, uh, but I got this ace that my sponsor told me to write my ace step down on three by five index cards. And I had a big stack of them. And I started this journey going through these, this process. And after I got about 12 years into the program, I had this guy named Robert Long on my list. This is my dad's brother. My dad, my dad died a year before I got sober. I didn't even know he was dead until 1988. That's how tore apart our relationship was. I didn't know the guy was dead. But there's this guy on her named Robert Long. That's my dad's brother. And I only seen the guy one time my whole life. And my, my sponsor said, you know, you need to put him down. And I said, why do I need to put him down? He goes, will you ever participate in his life? I said, well, no. But, I mean, I'm kind of the squirrel. He's the, he's the adult here. He goes, he never called me. He never participated in my life. He goes, how do you know? I said, well, I just know. And he goes, no, you don't know. He goes, you ever sent him a Christmas card? I said, nothing. I never never did anything with this guy. He says, put him on your list. I said, okay, whatever. I wrote him down. That's about all as far. He didn't go any deeper than that. He was just on my card. And every time he came to the top, he'd go right to the back. And this went on for 12 years in recovery. And at 12 years, that stack of three-by-five index cards I had got shrank down. I only had about 10 left. And he was one of them. And one day, I'm sitting in my office. It's, Christmas, it's right around Christmas, and there it is, Robert Long. And I don't even know if this guy's alive anymore. And I get on the internet and I Google Robert and Betty Long and right around Lebanon, Missouri, right around that area, it pops up Buffalo, Missouri, Robert and Betty Long. So that's got to be Mongol Bob. And uh, so I get a Christmas card out and I write a little summary of my life and what's went on and why I'm contacting him. I lick a stamp and mailed it. And about a week later, I get a card back from him, you know, and they were ecstatic. I still got the card today. They were just absolutely ecstatic to hear from me and, and always wondered what had happened to me. And the list goes on and on. And then my Aunt Betty called me like a day later. And she says, hey, I just want to make sure you got your card. Hearing from you was awesome and blah, 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 blah. And I told her I'm on this program recovery. I have been for about 12 years. And I'm trying to make restitution for Harms Pass. And I really need to come to Buffalo and see you guys face-to-face if you'll allow that. They said, well, we're not worried about all that stuff, but we'd love to see you. You're welcome to come. So I said, all right. So I drove there on a, on a Thursday to Buffalo, Missouri, about three, three and a half hours from St. Louis. And I drove to Buffalo, turned on Locust Street, went down Locust Street, and pulled in the driveway, little country town. And I seen them, there was a lot of cars at this place for a Thursday. I thought, man, there's a lot of cars here. And I get out, and, uh, and I'm nervous. The dark side's, you know, trying to sabotage it like it always does. And, uh, and I get out, and my little Aunt Betty, bless her heart, walks out on the front porch and looks at me with a big smile. And then she hollers back through the screen door and says, well, he looks like a long. <laughs> and I said, well, I knew I had the right place. And I'm a nervous wreck, you know. And I walk up there, and my Uncle Bob steps out on the front porch with a big grin and uh, sticks his hand out. And he said to me, welcome home, son. He goes, come inside. I got some people I want you to meet. And we went inside his house, and every one of his kids, grandkids, and, what, and cousins, I mean, there was about 30 people there that took off that day to welcome me back into their life. 
and uh, and I sat in that kitchen. I'm sitting there, and I'm just uh, I'm 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 flabbergasted from both ends. One, the awesomeness of God and the grace of God, because I could just feel it all around me. But also the evilness of this illness that I allowed this darkness still in my sobriety to rob me from a relationship for the past 12 years. Relationship I could have had from day one. But but that right to myself said, I ain't doing it. And I've had a great relationship with them ever since. My Uncle Bob died a couple years ago. Susie's met my Aunt Betty a couple times. And uh, just a tremendous, tremendous lady. And uh, when I went to my Uncle Bob's funeral, I was sitting in the front row. And she said, she sat right here with the Long family, boy. So we were right in the front row with her, right next to her. And the guy did the eulogy, and everybody was crying. And I mean, half the town came. And Bob was, my Uncle Bob was a Baptist minister in that town for 40 years, and a mailman for 40 years. He knew everybody. And I, and I just look around at, at the relationship that I just gave away because I want to live the, the life of King Alcohol. And I sit there, and then the best compliment I ever got in AA, I think, in my entire life, or one of them, was he squeezed my leg, and she goes, you know, boy. I go, yeah. And she goes, you remind me a lot of your Uncle Bob. And I said, what a tremendous compliment. That, that goes, and uh, so what you know. That's you know. So I've had many, many experiences like that. I want to come down to a winding end to this thing, talking about the main things that changed my life. And these, and, and I can't stress these enough. You know, I really can't stress these two things enough in your life. I mean, there's many stories like that. You have your stories like that. And if you don't, I mean, there's stories to be told. There's many Uncle Bob stories that are sitting right here waiting to happen, that just haven't happened because of that right to yourself. And I think we always got to remember about step nine is that. You know, we, I, I had all the alibis and excuses why I can't do it. They're all laid out in the big book. The big book does a great job of destroying those for us. But, you know, we, we get in these debates. Well, we're doing it for them. No, we're doing it for us. And the book's real clear. You know, the reason you're doing it is so you can be a maximum service to God and the people in your life. That's why we're working the 12 steps. It isn't just about staying sober. The preface of the 12 steps says that 12 steps is practiced as a way of life will expel the compulsive drink and lead to a life where you're happy and usefully whole. That, that our real purpose is to be a maximum service to God and the people in our life. That's why we're doing the 12 steps, to live the life that we were created to live from day one. The reason that God puts you on this planet is what the 12 steps are about. So you can go fulfill that dream, fulfill that purpose. And if you do that, it's going to be the greatest experience you ever have on planet Earth, I can promise you. But everything in you will try to sabotage that experience. That is the illness that we live with. We walk through this life part saint, part sinner, and we will be till the day we die. That's just who we're made up of. We're always going to have flaws. We're fatally flawed people. And, uh, and I know that about myself. And as much as I know that about myself, I still amaze how the darkness sleeps into my life and, and tries to sabotage me and manipulates me and cons me into stuff. It's just, it just amazes me. But I'm going to share these two things. My sponsor said, Harold, there's two things I want you doing all the time in your life. And if you do these two things to their fullest, you will live a storybook life. The first thing is you need to make sure you've got a new guy you're working the steps with all the time. And if you don't have a new guy, you stop what you're doing, you get out your fishing rod, you get out your bait, and you go fish where there's fish. And there's plenty of places to fish. If you don't know where there's at St. Louis, I'll be glad to show them to you. Mm -hmm. If you're sitting here going, well, I, don't, I can't get anybody to sponsor, trust me, there's a problem there, and we can show you how to fix that real quick because there, there's plenty of good fishing holes in St. Louis. But uh, you need to have that new guy you're working the studs with all the time. And most importantly, and this is critical, you need to be going somewhere once a week where you don't want to end up. And if you commit to those two things, you're going to have a storybook life. And I can tell you, standing here today, it's the absolute gospel truth in my life. And that started for me in 1993, or 1990. I started going to the Skid Row Mission on Harbor Light. And I went there every Thursday night, and I went there every Saturday morning. I did AA. It's the hardest place I've ever did Alcoholics Anonymous. I mean, absolutely the hardest place. I haven't been any place close to it. In 1993, I get a phone call that says, hey, man, would you come out to this prison and do this AA talk? And I started laughing. I go, dude, do you know who you're talking to? He goes, yeah, I know they're talking. I said, well, they're not going to let me in the prison. And he goes, well, I think you've been on paper long enough to let you in the prison. I said, okay, well, let's just pretend they'll let me in the prison. I don't want to go to the prison. <laughs> <laughs> I made a vow many, many years ago, I ain't going back to any place with bars. And he, go, he started laughing. He goes, well, why don't you run that last part by your sponsor and call me back? <laughs> so you know how that went. You know, I run it by He goes, oh, man, you got to go. That's what your duty is. And uh, he goes, I'll go with you. So he went with me. Went out to Gumbo Prison. No longer there. The flood of '93 took it out, but went there and did the deal. I had a tremendous experience doing that. And eventually, I get, a few months later, they invite me to go to the State of Missouri to the Walls, which was a hardcore place at that time. And went to the Walls and, and went to another place called Algoa. And these guys over in Algoa were doing this. The inmates, the offenders, were putting on this AA program for the day. It's a one-day shot. And I went there as a, just as a guest. And I sit there and watch these offenders inside a, inside this facility put on this AA whole experience for the weekend. I was just blown away by it. 
And then eventually the call came in like the following week, and they said, hey, man, we really like you and like your buddy Henry. If you guys would be willing, we'd really need your help starting this meeting in this maximum security penitentiary out here. Would you guys be willing to do that? And we said, yeah, and we started out on money, and that's been 20 years ago. And that's where we go every week. We go into a maximum facility, and, uh, and it's changed my life. I can't, I can't, there's nothing I can sit here and share with you that would change my life more than doing that. That is really the heart of my AA program. And, uh, and there's been, there's so many experiences. I could spend the weekend telling you story after story after story after story of, of how that's changed my life and, and the people that, have, that I've had to change. Because here's what I know. God doesn't bring two people together to help one of them. You know, so well, you're blessed to be in those positions. I'll share just a couple real quick, and then I'm going to wrap it up. But well, in 1996, we're in, we're in a maximum security prison, and a, and a guy came into the prison that had been sentenced to two life sentences, one for murdering his father. Some of you probably heard his story around St. Louis, and, uh, and the other one for armed criminal action. And he came in and he started in prison in 1987 in the walls, and he eventually got transferred to where I was at. In 1996, he came into one of our AA groups, and he come in just like every other offender does. And why do offenders, AA members in general are like this, but offenders to the extreme level. The reason we struggle so much is because we listen with our eyes and we think with our feelings. You know, so offenders going to watch you for a long time. They're going to hear anything. They, they listen by their eyes. They listen by watching what you're doing to see if you're authentic. Are you really authentic? What's coming out of your mouth is it back up in your actions. Prisoners, more than anybody, watch that. So typically, he'd sit for six months with his arms crossed just watching us. But eventually, time came where he signed up for one of our workshops, and he started into the 12-step journey in 1996. And the same 12 steps that transformed my life, I watched transform this guy's life right in front of my eyes at a maximum facility and many, many other guys to follow. And amazing how just the shift that happened in a very quick time, how God started, the blessing started to come this guy's way. And his mom and his grandma and his wife had all left him, you know, by this time. And in 1996, they all started to get back on his visitor list. And his wife came back and renewed her vows with him. And, and life was happening and, and things were happening. And I watched him go in front of the pro board and get a two-year setback or a four-year setback. But he just hung in there and he kept coming. He kept doing a deal. And in 2006, he came into our prison meeting with a big old smile that wrapped all the way around his head. He's going to never going to guess what happened, man. And I said, what happened? And he said, I got an outdate. I said, what? He goes, I got an outdate. I get to go home in two years. And I said, that's amazing because you easily should have done 30 years on, on the time you did. Well, he ended up doing 21 years to the date. And he got out in 2008. And just like I tell every offender when they get out, you know, because that first 24 to 48 hours is everything. I don't care if you're coming out of a halfway house, have a treatment center, out of anything. If that first 24 48 hours you don't engage, the dark side is going to roll up in a limo, pull out the red carpet, and you're probably going to be gone into the darkness. But he called me immediately. As soon as he got in the car, he was the first call. calls me up on the phone. He says he was with his wife on the way home. He says, hey, man. I go, are you out? And he goes, yeah, man, I'm out. Unbelievable. He goes, I'm on this thing called a cell phone. It's incredible. <laughs> you know, 21 years of being in car street. I said, that's awesome. And I said, well, man, just go home, enjoy your family, and call me in the morning. 930 the next morning, he called me. Hey, man, what are you doing? I said, oh, not much. What are you doing? He goes, man, you're never going to guess what I'm doing. I said, well, let's see. you have been incarcerated 21 years, and now I've been with your wife for 21 years. I guess what you've been doing all that. <laughs> he started laughing. He goes, no, man, I'm not talking about that. I go, what are you talking about? He goes, man, I'm opening gifts. I go, cool, man. Welcome home gifts? He goes, no, man. I'm opening Father's Day gifts, birthday gifts, and Christmas gifts from, since 1996. And my heart just melted like butter. And he, he, we're both crying. He goes, you're never going to guess what I got for, for Christmas in 97. <laughs> I said, what did you get for Christmas in 97? He said, I got a Miami, Miami Dolphins jacket. He goes, he loved Miami Dolphins. Why? I don't know. He never, he, never even, he never even been to an NFL football game. But this is how God works in the, in the spiritual mathematics. Because I already had four tickets that another guy had given me to give to this guy for the Rams and Dolphins game in St. Louis four weeks later. And I said, well, i got a little gift to add to your gift. He goes, oh, that's awesome. He goes, who am I going to take? I don't even know anybody. He says, will you go? I said, I'll go. And he goes, well, let's take Big Book Bob. Big Book Bob had life in 45. And we'll take Gary, who had life in 20. And they were both out, all got sober, all came out of those same groups. And we all go down to the football game. We ate pancakes first. We went up to the football game having the time of our life, man, just an amazing journey where God brought us to. And we're sitting out at the game, and the lady at halftime turned around and looked at us. She goes, man, you guys are having a lot of fun. I said, yeah, we really are. And she goes, and you guys aren't even drinking. I said, no, ma'am. She goes, what's well, a good thing? I said, why is that? She goes, well, you guys carry on. You guys end up in jail. <laughs> I said, well, we're dying. We still laugh about it today. I said, yeah, that's probably true. And uh, But those journeys are, uh, are, are just great. And uh, 
and it's a tremendous gift to be able to do that. And uh, my buddy Chris sitting right down here on my left, he just came home on March 31st, you know, and uh, came home from prison. You guys can clap that. That's all I can do. After, uh, after being down for over nine years, you know, um, you know, A works, you know, if you work, and it's a tremendous ride to be able to do that. Uh, we uh, had the privilege this last year to uh, get a call from Alcoholics Anonymous that said, this GSO, and we said, I, we'd like uh, a favor from you. And I said, what's that? We said, we'd love for you to uh, help take the lead and participate in remaking a new AA video for Alcoholics Anonymous, World Service. I said, yeah, what's that? And they said, uh, sure beats sitting in a cell. We, we would like to redo the movie we made it 25 years ago. Would you be willing to take a lead part in that? I said, yeah, I'd love to. So we got involved with that, and uh, Frank, my buddy Frank, was much part of that, and and uh, my home group, AA on the Rocks, was a part of that. And Tracy, who's sitting here in the very front, was very much a part of that video. And uh, we shot most of it on the inside. We shot some of it at Sing Sing, some of it in L.A. County, out in, in the Rowles part of the world, with the women's jail. We shot part of it in North Carolina. Uh, and it just got approved by the General Service Office this last conference. So that that video will be coming out. You know? <laughs> uh, it's a good deal. Um, you know, I want, to, I want to close by saying this, and I just want to kind of piggyback where Doug left off, and I know where Sheldon will pick up, and I, and I know where Carla will go because I know them all, and I know how much they love this program, and they love Alcoholics Anonymous. So I just kind of want to wind down with this as a message really to, the new, to all of us just to, to renew our lives. And, uh, you know, I've been blessed beyond my means. I can sit here all day and talk about the things that got me. I got, you know, with Susie's, Susie has three kids. I got two daughters. We got five kids, man. We got four, four of them are daughters. We got four daughters. I mean, be careful what you pray for, man. You know, it's God's way of getting you. We, we saw a bumper sticker or a little sign the other day. We died laughing. It says, "Raising teenagers is like being picked." Or, or, or was it? Yeah, raising teenagers is like being pecked to death by a chicken. <laughs> I thought, yeah, that's about right, you know. But they're all great, man. My kids are great, and uh, I didn't never knew I could be a dad, you know. And I never knew I could fall in love with a little bald-headed woman with no teeth either, you know. But when that doctor handed me the first one, you know, it changed my life. You know, it was a changer. But I just want to share this one insight because, if you're, you know, the things that I struggle with throughout my sobriety can be summarized really fast. And I call them the five big delusions. The first delusion was that I was an alcoholic. That delusion alone kills most people. The second delusion I had to overcome was the delusion that it's not my fault this delusion of victimization. And the problem with victimization is, is I can I can sit and drink myself to death and it's not my fault. I can rot away in a nine by seven or ten by six prison cell and it's not my fault. I've never met a happy victim yet in Alcoholics Anonymous. The next delusion I had to come over was the delusion of time. That somehow another time had passed me by. You know, all this stuff's great for you, but you don't understand I've already blown my life up. Life has passed me by. There's too, it's too late for me. I, I'm not gonna be able to climb the top of a mountain. It's just not gonna happen for me, so why even try? What the hell is the use? You know, so we get that discouraged heart and we just quit. We don't even start. So many people don't even get started because they got a discouraged heart because they just, they're under the delusion that time's passing them by. They're, 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 the value of their life is wasted. And it's this delusion. It's not truth at all. But I had to overcome that. The fourth delusion I had to overcome is this whole spiritual disqualification because of the evil that I did in my life. I was an evil guy. And I can still have some pretty evil thoughts still today. I can have some really dark stuff that goes on between my ears. And that's just a fact. Uh, no doubt about it. But it, it's that darkness that sometimes tries to separate me from you. To try to tell me that I'm a fraud, that I'm not really fake. If I was really sober and quality sobriety, I wouldn't be thinking this way. I wouldn't even have these thoughts. But the fact you do just demonstrates you're not authentic, so why don't you just leave now quietly? That's where the darkness tries to take me in my mind. I'm sure it does you the same. But that disqualification, because of the shame and the guilt that we carry into Alcoholics Anonymous, just drives us in our life. You know, and because of pride, we don't want to own it. And pride, you know, I'm telling you, that, that shame, that guilt smothered in pride is unjustifiable. But you take that same that same guilt and that shame, and, and it's smothered in, in uh, <coughs> excuse me, smothered in fear. It's unbearable, and we come here with a tremendous amount of shame and a tremendous amount of guilt, and it's unbearable when you're carrying it because of fear of just bringing it out and maybe convicting somebody else and having to share somebody else's dirt that took place in your life. That fear is unbearable. But I'm telling you, that same guilt and shame when it's smothered in grace, is forgivable, man. And when you get to that point in your life, it's when it changed. But I had it took me a long time to get to that point from a from a spiritual standpoint to really really accept in my heart that I was forgiven for the stuff that I've done in my life. I mean, I just told you a few things in my life, but I lived a dark life, man. That's just the gospel truth. I lived a dark life, and I, and to get past that divine persecution, that condemnation that was in my heart, that are just really, you know, I get lip service all the time that you know this higher power, yeah, it's all that, but in the heart of hearts, I really 
didn't believe that God would forgive me. I really didn't believe it. I gave a lot of lip service. We give a lot of lip service sometimes to the word faith, but do we really believe? You know, there was a great trapeze artist back in the, in the 1800s back on the East Coast named the Great Blondie. And the Great Blondie was famous. He was walked tightropes across Niagara Falls and all that. And one day he decided to add a wheelbarrow to his act. He started walking across the falls with a wheelbarrow, and he'd throw his little wife, a little petite wife, into the wheelbarrow, and they walk back across. And there'd be hundreds of people on both sides that were just praising this thing. And he'd go back to one side and he'd go, you think I can do it again? Everybody's like, yeah, I can do it again. He goes, all right. And he'd go back across. And eventually he went back across and he to the other side. And he asked the crowd that question, do you think I can do it again? And everybody's like, yeah. And he looks at one guy in particular and he goes, do you think I can do it again? And he goes, yeah. He goes, do you really believe it? He goes, I believe it. He goes, get in the Wilbur. <laughs> get in the Wilbur. Let's find out what you really believe. And I think there's a big, big distance between faith and what we really believe. And, and that's where I was really hung up at. But once I really believed that God had forgiven me, it changed my life. That's when the grace really came into my life. And that last big delusion I had to overcome that there was no purpose for my life. You know, that, I mean, what am I really here for? I mean, I mean I'm mean, i just I'm broken in every different direction. But my God changed my life. I went back to school. I got an education. I went back and signed up for community college. Went and got a GED. Went back to college. Got a, got a degree. Stayed on the dean's list all the way through. Got an MBA. You know, and open a business that I own and operate today. You know, that's where God took my life. God used my life in so many different ways. But I'm telling you, at the end of the day, it, with all this stuff, it boils down to, to, to this is the spiritual experience. It's a spiritual journey we're on. And I don't know where you're at on your spiritual journey, but I know Alcoholics Anonymous wants to meet you right where you're at. Wherever you're at on your journey. I don't care if you're brand new or if you're sitting here caught in the middle. Because some of us get caught in the middle. we got one foot in the dark and one foot in the light. we got too much light in our life to enjoy the dark. we got too much dark in our life to enjoy the light. And we're just caught right in the middle. Part of us wants to be here. The other part can't wait to get out. You know. And sometimes we've been sitting here with a number and number of years of sobriety with that. But I want to close with this, this little statement. It's a biblical exchange between Jesus and a rabbi named Nicodemus. But it, it lays real well to our third step. I want to read this one piece from our third step and sit down. But there was an exchange one time between Jesus and this rabbi named Nicodemus. And they're trying, he's trying to understand this whole spirit thing. And Jesus, and I'm paraphrasing all this for the sake of time, but, it, but, but Jesus is basically saying, you know, that God is spirit. That's what God is. God is spirit. It's like the wind. You don't know where it came from. You don't know where it's going. God is spirit. And if you want to be a part of the spirit, you have to be reborn. And this guy couldn't get that and said, how do you get reborn? I mean, I don't get it. You go back to your mother's womb. How do you get reborn? And, and, and he says, you're a great teacher here, and yet you don't know these things. And he goes, how are you ever going to believe the things of this world if you don't believe what I tell you from above? He said, I'm telling you, God is spirit. And when we look at our spirit life, and, and how do you begin reborn? Well, our program tells us real quick how to become reborn. And it basically says that we have to be convinced that a life lived on self can hardly be a success. And that hereafter in the drama life, that God's going to be the director in our life. And if we do these things and we follow here this, these third-step principles, these third-step promises, that we're going to have this experience. And this is what it says. It says, when we sincerely took such a position, all sorts of remarkable things followed. We had a new employer being all-powerful. He provided what we needed if, this is the kicker, we kept close to him and performed his work well. Established on such a footing, we became less and less interested in ourselves, our little plans and designs. More and more, we became interested in seeing what we could contribute to life. As we felt new power flow in, as we enjoyed peace of mind, and as we discovered we could face life successfully, as we became conscious of his presence, we began to lose our fear of today, tomorrow, or the hereafter. We are reborn. That's how you get reborn. I hope you get reborn. Because I've had two chances at life. I've had a lease on life. I didn't get to live once. I got to live twice. What a tremendous, tremendous opportunity. Thank you for my life. Thanks a lot.